Hey, welcome back Screen Crush. I'm Ryan Airy and the MCU is in really big trouble. This is not like a chicken little, oh my God, the sky is falling, where I'm like being a sensationalist YouTuber trying to get clicks. The MCU is in serious trouble and it has a lot of YouTubers like me scared. I'm worried that if Marvel isn't careful, the MCU could go the way of The Walking Dead. Oh no, no. <laughs> another massive franchise that basically wore fans down until most of them became apathetic. So a little later, I'm going to be joined by two behind-the-scenes experts of the MCU and co-authors of the new book, The Reign of Marvel Studios, which is out now. We're going to hear from Joanna Robinson and Dave Gonzalez, but first, let me talk to you and explain exactly what's happening here. We all know the MCU has had a rough year. Hell, they've kind of had a rough decade at this point. A lot has happened. Several Disney Plus shows like Moon Knight, She-Hulk, and Ms. Marvel has had, let's say, mixed reception. The Eternals got a rotten score. Quantumania not only got a rotten score, but a lot of fans think it wasted the new big bad Kang by having him get defeated by ants. And overall, the quality of the CGI is slipping, and Secret Invasion was the first Marvel project that I consider to be downright awful. But look, we love talking about the MCU on this channel. We love analyzing and theorizing about the MCU. So I figured that when Loki came out, the fans would come home. And the first episode of Loki is good. Like, it's a total return to form for Disney+. Plus. You know that? Yeah. You've seen that? Yeah. So in the old days, a Loki breakdown video would have gotten us anywhere from like half a million to 800,000 views. And a big channel like New Rockstars or Emergency Awesome would have easily seen twice that. And now, a week later, like as of the last time I checked, we had about 300,000, 350. That's nice. New Rockstars only has 800,000. Emergency Awesome has like 200. And like when you look at my other colleagues, like heavy spoilers, everything always, the views are shockingly low. Now I asked you guys about this on my Twitter saying I was surprised the views were low and asking if people didn't watch Loki or if they just don't care about breakdowns. And I had like 700 responses, which was super cool. I'm very popular. And the consensus was that fans are just burned out by too many mediocre projects. Now look, I'm not saying this is superhero fatigue. Superheroes have been around for a century, but I think it's definitely Marvel mid-fatigue. I mean, ever since Marvel Studios started making projects for Disney+, Plus, Kevin Feige has been stretched well past his limits, which I read about in detail in the Reign of the MCU book, so I'm lucky to have two of the co-authors with me here in a bit. Now, I will say, though, that everybody's views did pick up over the weekend, which means that people wanted to watch the show, they just weren't, like, super keen to watch it. So that's an indication to me that fan interest in the MCU is still far lower than it was even six months ago. Now, I knew that the Marvel brand had been tarnished by middling visual effects and weak shows and quantum mania let some people down and secret invasion was a disaster but guys this is loki we're talking about this is where we live this is our home Loki is the show. I love the MCU. I could not wait for this show, and it's great. So I was surprised that so many people didn't want to watch Loki like the minute it was released. It used to be that we would pounce on any new MCU project. I mean, we're enthusiastic about the show. We had a lot of fun designing our Loki-inspired merch at our merch store, like this usual variant shirt, Doug is Loki, Miss Minutes Dolly Clock, and the variant hoodie. And by the way, guys, thank you very much for watching, subbing, supporting us, and checking out our store. It is the best way for you to directly support our channel. The link is below. I love you guys. Now, a lot of our fans in my Twitter thread also responded that they did not know the show was coming out so soon, which is fair. Because of the strikes, there was far less promotion. But let's face it, for MCU fans, they didn't know it was coming out in part because it feels disposable. Like, if you can't watch Loki now, eh, it's just Marvel, and that means you can watch it anytime on Disney+. Marvel is losing the fans. Now, we have talked at length here on Screen Crush Rewind about how this happened. It's discussed in this book, for instance, that former Disney CEO Bob Chapek pressured Marvel and Lucasfilm to ramp up production and start 
start shows that were not ready, and the results were cheap TV made by committee. And look, obviously, nothing against the talented writers, actors, directors, and VFX artists that created these shows. They were asked to do the impossible, and they are only human. Really tried this time. I mean, I really tried. Marvel over-accelerated, they overextended themselves, and worst of all, they overextended fans. I was rooting for you! We were all rooting for you! How dare you! So my question, as a fan, and as somebody who is lucky enough to talk about this stuff for a living, is the magic gone? And if so, how do we get it back? Or is this franchise really going to go the way of The Walking Dead? I'm really hoping that my guests have the answers. We have the two co-authors of the book, The Reign of Marvel Studios, Joanna Robinson and Dave Gonzalez. And I will say that we had to edit their interview for time. But if you like what you hear and you want to hear the full interview, it is up on our Screen Crush Rewind podcast, which is linked below and everywhere that you can find a podcast on the internet. But that's just my thoughts. I don't want to take up any more time, though, because today I have two actual experts. This is a huge get for us. We have two of the co-authors of the Reign of Marvel Studios, the upcoming book. Uh, we have Joanna Robinson and Dave Gonzalez. This book is fantastic. They're not paying me to say this. I've read it cover to cover, some sections more than once. It is so well-researched, intricate. Uh, I highly recommend it if you're a fan of how the sausage gets made in the MCU. So I have to talk to you guys about this. So I was shocked, like I said, with the Loki views. Now, not that every, you know, video we put out is going to have a lot of views, but like Loki and no YouTube channel was, was getting a lot of traffic on this. And like I said earlier with my tweet, the, the general consensus that I got from like people who follow me on Twitter and thank all of you for that. Um, the general consensus was that they're just worn out, that there's MCU fatigue or too many projects that weren't good. You know, we are coming off some like bad Rotten Tomato scores. So my first question for you guys is, do you think the magic is gone with the MCU? And if so, like, how does it come back for fans? I, I don't know that I would say gone, gone, but certainly I think that, I mean, especially I would, I'll, you know, you, you very diplomatically put it on Rotten Tomato scores. I will voice my own opinion and say, I think Secret Invasion was truly terrible like a really disappointing sort of miss yeah. for the talented cast they had assembled there uh just and a squandered. great source material yeah great source material just like yeah. squandered a yeah. lot of potential in a baffling way just like all these decisions i did not understand at all the marvel fatigue is something that i've been hearing about a lot you hear about it more now because there are more marvel fans that were lured mm -hmm. in and sort of like the monoculture casual area of uh, Infinity War and Endgame, and mm -hmm. they went back and they did their homework, and maybe they enjoy doing that homework, or maybe they've been with it since 2008 and Iron Man, and they were ready to see this culmination. Uh, now we're much more in the, like, uh, it feels familiar to me as somebody that used to collect the comics, where it's like, towards the end of the 90s for Marvel Comics, it's like, I'm not really interested in any of these storylines. Uh, they all involved me having to know, you know, like three decades mm -hmm. worth of comic history. Uh, how could we refocus that? And I think uh, Marvel Comics did a lot in its uh, Ultimate Comic series, rebooting at the beginning of the century. That's also around the time that the movies came out and presented new versions of uh, Spider-Man and the X-Men that people could like understand. So I think mm -hmm. we're having a little bit of Marvel fatigue just because people are feeling like there's a backlog, especially with something like Loki, where that's part of its premise. But no one... People could join something like Doctor Who that has a similar premise to Loki and not necessarily have seen all the Doctor Whos, especially because in a sense that's not possible. So I do think that people are going to come <laughs> around to Loki uh, as, as it continues on. Um, it might have just been nestled into a weird starting spot 
where like I, I don't know if we've all gotten over Ahsoka yet if we're mul- fans of multiple Disney True, and uh, I, sub I got that answer a lot too. Um, j- back to what you were saying about the comics, you know, you're right. Late 90s, Marvel obviously like overinflated a lot of their properties. We had the Clone Saga. Uh, Joe Quesada came in as editor-in-chief. He started Marvel Knights. They did a lot of, like, soft reboot things with Marvel in addition to the Ultimates line. And, I, you know, regardless of how you think the MCU is going to end after Secret Wars, it does feel like part of this is it's too complicated. But part of it is also with with uh, the Clone Saga. I was a comic book reader, voracious comic book reader throughout the 90s. And the Clone Saga is what made me realize oh, I'm not really reading the continuing adventures of Spider-Man. I'm reading something that a company is making. Mm-hmm. And I wonder how much, like with the MCU, when we make our theory videos, we talk about it as if it's real, because it's fun. It's very fun to say, oh, Thor had a vision. Uh, Thor's, Thor saw the end of Infinity War in the, in the hot tub in Age of Ultron. But, and of course, we know intellectually, they didn't plan everything out straight from the start, but the writers build on each other in really fun ways, like you guys talk about in the book. Now I kind of feel like people are more aware, even through osmosis, that there's the plan keeps changing. I mean, you mentioned several times in the book, um, you know, you kind of, like I said, this is how the sausage gets made. You talked about how Majors was not uh, originally supposed to be the overarching big bad, um, but the decision to elevate him to a Thanos-level threat was based on the positive buzz of his performance. There's an interesting distinction being made between the way in which the... MCU built and built and built on itself via different writers previously to how it works now because the TV section of it is very interesting to me, the Disney Plus section, because Mm -hmm. I've talked to a number of the head writers on those shows and they all tell me the same story about how much they're kept into the dark in the dark about what else is going on at Marvel and how they're given like a little bucket of characters, extra characters that they're allowed to draw from. Like, okay, you can pull in, um, you know, you can get Kat Dennings to be in WandaVision. She's on the board, but then that character might disappear because oops, they're going to use, you know, not in the case of Mm -hmm. Kat Dennings, but another character like, Oh, you can no longer have that character because we're going to use them somewhere else. We can't tell you where. And so, those writers on those TV shows describe themselves as being like a train and a car and they're allowed to decorate their own train the way that they want to, their own car the way that they want to, but they don't have a sense of what the longer train looks like. You have producers on all of those shows that know that are part of the Marvel parliament that report to the top brass, but the creative writers don't know the larger what you know where their time thread fits in the larger temporal loom you know if if Mm -hmm. you want to use a loki metaphor and so that's so tough for me because you get things like they've always handed off characters between writers but when you get the handoff from something like wandavision to something like Doctor Strange and the Multiverse of Madness, and and you see what Wanda goes through in WandaVision, then you see what Wanda goes through in Multiverse of Madness. And even though Michael Waldron, who I really respect and admire, talked to Jack Schaefer, who was the head writer on WandaVision, and they were pals and they talked about Wanda, I feel like there's a huge gap between that Wanda that I understood in that show and the Wanda that I saw, then saw in that film. And, and so then Elizabeth I just, Olsen agrees with you. Exactly. In, and so then I just don't feel like... Care. I I don't feel like I am watching the same story the way that we used to in the past when these building blocks Mm -hmm. were stacked upon each other in a slower, more methodical fashion. Now the train is going so quickly uh, and there's so much handing off going on without a sense of the full picture. Um, I don't know how you create in an environment like that. All throughout the book, 
um, you talk a lot, and again, I just want to, the, especially the latter part of it, like, like this section of this book, when you guys talk about COVID-19 and beyond, was like jaw-dropping. Because everything else in here, I kind of knew a lot of it, but like that stuff, never read it before. You get into a lot about um, the pressure that Marvel has been under, Kevin Feige especially. There's uh, one excerpt here I liked where you say, um, Feige now had creative control, but not necessarily quality control. And there's a lot of, uh, uh, I think I can use the term finger pointing at Bob Chapek, who was put in a really difficult position, inherited the comp like the CEO job right when the pandemic hit. But there seemed to be a lot more external pressure uh, on Marvel to ramp up. Um, how much of a, a detriment do you think that's been with what's happened creatively and then with fans? There's so there's so many factors, as you mentioned, in that sort of like back little chunk there that we enumerate. There's COVID. There's, you know, the tragic passing of Chadwick Boseman, who was meant to be sort of an anchor for the future of the MCU. There's all these things they could not have possibly anticipated. James Gunn. Uh, James Gunn leaving yeah. from D.C., all this sort of stuff. But I think that um, that ramping up of content as, you know, as Dave and I have been talking about the book more and more. I just can't help but think that 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 is the biggest sin of this era of Marvel. And Chapik does get a lot of of the blame. I, I we should be really clear. Bob Iger before he left Disney Plus as an initiative, the ramping up of content that was Bob Iger's idea. Yes, he leaves yes. this project to Bob Chapik. We'll talk. I'll circle back to that in a hot second. But then Chapik gets booted out because no one's happy with what's going on with uh, these various very valuable IP brands over at Disney, uh, among other things. And Iger comes back in and he's like, "Who turned on all these taps?" Who did this when, like, he's the one who did it, right? And he's like, right, let's right. turn off some of these. We're apps. all trying to find the guy. <laughs> <laughs> who crashed this sure, sweeter mobile? Sure, yeah, sure, so it's like, sure. so I think that, um, you know, I, I want to make sure that Iger has his place in all of this. But to circle back to Chapek, Chapek, um, very crucially, was a money guy and not a relationship guy. Iger's a relationship guy. The the event that I think about all the time is the it was like Bob Chapek's coming out presentation where Feige and Kathleen Kennedy. It was this weird covid hybrid. Mm -hmm. It wasn't Comic-Con. It mm -hmm. wasn't D23. It was for the investors and quote unquote for the fans. Um, and they came out and they announced a bunch of upcoming projects, many of which have been canceled or, in, you know, postponed indefinitely etc since because they were not ready to announce those projects but were pushed to do so because chapek and larger disney was concerned about their shareholders and so they wanted to pump up the brand but then feige is forced to do this thing that he never wanted to do which is promise projects that he wasn't sure he was going to deliver on yet he's always been so careful about we don't say we're doing this with the x-men or this with the fantastic four until we have something we want to announce like that's that's his that's his uh, approach. So I was thinking about that when I think about Chapek's role in sort of the content glut um, as a symptom of a larger problem of like, go, go, go. I don't care if you're not ready. Go. We got to go. And, and again, that, you know, the theaters are closed. The parks are closed. Streaming seems like this gold rush. Warner Brothers is putting things out in the same day just to give it context. Yes, of course. Of course. Yeah. Dave, I'm I. I think I just talked too much. Oh, no, no. What Ryan said was well, actually what I was going to bring up, which is that, like, the race to win the streaming wars has affected everything. Um, just how we digest storytelling, 
Uh, there's, you know, 600 scripted shows that you could find somewhere. Uh, like, I think a lot of stuff that uh, we saw come out from Marvel in this time period, um, especially like Secret Invasion and maybe Falcon and the Winter Soldier to a certain extent. Like, for all we know, if they were at Warner Brothers, they would have been Batgirls and they were just like, you know what? This isn't working. But that's not Marvel's mm-hmm. strategy. That's not Disney's strategy. That certainly wasn't the Chapek strategy. He's like, why would I not have content when the option is to have content? Uh, because it was a subscriber game at that point. And then now, mm-hmm. as they've uh, reduced the number uh, because of uh, things out of their control, like strikes and uh, box office uh, receipts, um, we're back into, like, we got three Marvel movies this year and I believe, like, two streaming series. So down, down from what was supposed to be, if you go back to July 2022, this year was supposed to be five series. Yeah. Um, counting What If, Agatha, which for some reason was greenlit. I want to ask you about that in a second. Ironheart. Uh, and I think X-Men 97 was supposed to be in there, too. Yeah, so all those things uh, are supposed to, I think we were supposed to get What If uh, Season 2 also this year, but I think that's also been pushed to next year. So the, they've already we're started... We're all put, waiting to hear. Yeah. <laughs> they've all started putting the brakes on it, and I, I'll be interested to see when Marvel rebounds, which for me is a when and not a if, because like I even the most Marvel-fatigued person is going to buy tickets for the next Avengers movie. Uh, so we were really just sort of like keeping the balloon up in the air. But sure. uh, imagine if we had gone through the same amount of Disney Plus series and Phase 4 with a three movies a year release schedule. Like we'd be coming up on Wakanda forever now-ish. So mm-hmm. I, th- I think we, we did sort of like Band-Aid right off with a lot of experimental ideas, with a lot of patching over what they thought the plan was going to be. And so what we've seen up until now has been Marvel problem solving as they go, which... I guess to a certain extent they always do, but over the first three phases there were uh, much clearer goalposts. Uh, the fact that we got to Ant-Man and the Wasp Quantumania and sort of booted Kang into the big bad thing after his performance in Loki uh, is a good example uh, where they did something similar where Joss Whedon's like, why don't we have Thanos at the end of this Avengers movie? And then Thanos became yep. the thing. So I believe mm-hmm. it's something that's like narratively fixable. It's just messier than what we've come to expect uh, from this studio. You said that you didn't think Marvel fatigue was going to last, that it was a question of when and if not if. I am now switching to the, the, the slow reception of Loki has made me so cynical with this because mm-hmm. there was another massive franchise called The Walking Dead that was unstoppable and now can't even get a million viewers on its new spinoff shows which feature these really popular characters. I... You know, Deadpool's going to do great. Um, what else? Maybe Captain America will do great. Maybe Thunderbolts. But, like, Deadpool's, like, the only certified hit next year, and it's an existing character. It's taken in the X-Men, this other universe. So there's things in there to be excited about. But I don't... I mean, Joanna, I want to hear what you have to say here. I don't think they'll ever be able to get fans excited about... Uh, who do I want to... About the Agatha show, in the same way that they were curious about <laughs> She-Hulk. What, what do you think? Like, are, are we basically entering into a like a like a hard reboot on fans expectations where they have to earn trust back i mean they definitely do have to earn trust back after a number of missteps i think that's true how and does I think, that happen then well i think in general i will just say um and what i love about the way that we wrote this book is that we we don't come at, at it with from identical perspectives um and so dave is always going to be a little bit higher on this idea of like superhero fatigue is fake news, et cetera, than I am because, I agree. Um, you know, he points out that 
we heard this after Ultron, which is true. I just think it's slightly, it's it's different than it was after Ultron. Um, but, you know, Dave and I can duke that out in various uh, interviews over the next couple of weeks. But, <laughs> but I think that it's not that there's no way back. I just, I don't think we're ever getting back to Endgame. But it's the same way I don't think House of the Dragon is ever getting back to the end of Game of Thrones. You know what I mean? It's just like we're in a different phase of the monoculture. We're in a different phase of the way in which we mm-hmm. watch stories or talk about stories. A way to rejuvenate people's investment in the MCU is the soft reboot possibility that Secret Wars presents um, in terms of resetting timelines, continuities, uh, mm-hmm. p- pruning down characters. The excitement of Fantastic Four and X-Men, which are properties like you, know, you mentioned Deadpool. Like Deadpool, these are known quantities for people. So they're going to be curious. Who's the new Wolverine? You know, mm-hmm. who's who, you know, who's Mr. Fantastic? All of that. So I think that they have a lot of uh, power plays in their pocket. Um, they're just going to have to clear out the decks a bit and and you know dial back the ambition or their or their overconfidence that people would follow them anywhere. They have learned you know, a rude lesson that people will not follow them anywhere. Yeah, and I will say, like as a comic book fan, I've always seen these characters as representations of the page. So when you talk about a soft reboot, I wouldn't like. I it bothers me. I'm never going to get to see Tony Stark and Wolverine. I wouldn't mind a reboot with a different version of Tony Stark. I, I don't know where fans will be at that point. Maybe they'll have moved on to, to DC movies and maybe superhero fatigue actually is real. You know, Dave, I know you don't agree with that. I don't agree <laughs> with that, but I well, can see the greater public agreeing with it. Absolutely. <laughs> anymore. I mean, Disney Plus, uh, both across Lucasfilm and Marvel Studios, I think has, uh, the series that have really hit for them uh, have been a different type of series than what they would technically make in a movie. Something that I really Mm -hmm. liked about the first episode of season two of Loki is uh, if you just strip all the Marvel out of it, uh, we get a previously on that's like, time doesn't work here. We're outside of time. And then the episode starts and it's like, but we have a ticking clock in this episode. And that just tickles me as somebody who enjoys how episodes of TV and how arcs of TV work. The idea that we don't know who disintegrated Loki at the end of episode one Mm -hmm. And like the your very accurate theory, I feel that we're all going to loop back around to this oh, yeah. and uh, sort of, you know, have our own uh, bootstrap paradox, if you will, uh, in season two of Loki is just smart, uh, like ways to do television. I think She-Hulk, even though it might have been a little bit of jarring, a little bit jarring, it allowed itself to be that more lighthearted fourth wall breaking. You know, we're not going to tell a sky portal story like you are used mm-hmm. to like Hulk stories kind of ending up in. Instead, we're going to tell like the smaller story that I think is uh, if executed correctly is what's going to save Marvel. Uh, what doesn't work is if you're like secret, uh, secret invasion is going to be like our next spy thriller after like Cap- the Captain America movie we did like a decade back and then completely drop the ball on just the interior logic of how a television show works Baffling. within that run uh, because you probably have to reshoot half of it. Uh, that's not going to help them. Again, for re- we covered this on our channel before, but for reasons that probably largely were beyond their control with the Russian invasion of Ukraine. Yeah. Um, but still, like Secret Invasion was maybe the clone saga of the MCU where a lot of people realized, oh, this is not just bad, but it's disorganized and it doesn't feel like I'm getting to watch a universe far away. Same way Ray Palpatine was with me. It was such like a retcon. <laughs> it, it pulled me out of the Star Wars universe in a way that I could, it's like seeing the, the guy where it's like, if you ever see a picture of Jim Henson working Kermit and you're like, oh my God, what? 
it's like that, you know? It's like, it totally breaks down your How suspension dare of you invoke Ray Palpatine on this very, very lighthearted, gentle conversation about the MCU. Now we're, we're still ta- We're still talking about it. <laughs> I will talk about it until I, my J.J. Abrams puppet is right down there ready to have another argument with me. Dave, you mentioned execution, and I think that's really the problem because we're not comic book artists and writers putting these stories out. It's thousands of hours of creative input that, you know, Joanna, you talked about that people have to like collaborate across different projects and genres. And in the book, you go into great detail about, you know, Marvel Department of Yes and Victoria Alonso and how the VFX workers were overworked. And then the effect that had on the writers and how the writers were siloed on different TV projects. Like I, it definitely in the book, you're like, this got to a point where it was just totally unwieldy. Do you think there's a future for streaming shows to be part of Marvel, or does it just contribute to this idea, oh, God, it's a mess, there's too much? Well, I think I have so much respect for the people at Marvel, and I do not blame them for their uh, assumption that they could figure anything out after they did what they did with you know, the Avengers saga and leading up to Infinity War and Endgame. They're like, we crack, we, we figured out how to make movies and we hadn't made those before. And we figured out how to make the biggest franchise in the world. And we hadn't done that before. We can do TV. And then they just tried to work their TV shows the way that they work their films to a certain degree. They didn't have showrunners. Um, you know, they were like, we're going to, we're going to innovate this or disrupt this the same way we disrupted, disrupted filmmaking or whatever. And it's just like, I, I don't I don't mean to sound stodgy and old fashioned, but it's it felt like smacked like ever so slightly of disrespect for the medium of television and the way in which that storytelling is different mm. from the way you tell you, you make movies. And so, you know, we heard from brilliant people like Nate Moore, who I really respect, but he's oh. just sort of like, oh, yeah, we were. Yeah, we didn't know anything about making te- television. So we just sort of like figured it out as we went and we hired some, you know, and it's just sort of like, mm-hmm. well, I mean. There's a reason TV has existed the way it has for so long. There's a reason that certain people get a little frosty when you call a TV show an eight-hour movie. Because they're like, TV storytelling is different from film storytelling. And especially that Marvel model that we had a really fun time trying to break down and figure out in the book of, like, how does a Marvel movie get made at, at, at the height of its power? At the at when all of the gears were well oiled in the Marvel machine, how did a Marvel movie get made? And one part of it that we loved learning about it was this idea that you go out, you make your movie, you bring back the pieces, and then Kevin Feige like makes your movie into a movie. You know, and there's just mm-hmm. this like idea of Kevin Feige as this sort of like producer director on a lot of these films. Uh, to, you know, to the consternation of certain people who have worked for Marvel, Alan Taylor will say very mm-hmm. negative things about that experience in Thor the Dark World. But, like, that was the idea, is that, like, you make the movie, Feige sees what you've made, he says, okay, here's the actual movie, and then they have a whole set of uh, reshoots built into their production schedule, and then they sort of kind of remake the movie into the final project that we know and love. You cannot do that on a TV schedule. You just certainly, you just simply cannot. And so, um, and especially with the Feige who's stretched thin, especially with the Feige who has, because he had to, delegated a lot of responsibility to the Marvel Parliament, which again is made up of a bunch of brilliant producers who've worked at Marvel for a long time. But like, you know, what you find out when you try to dilute 
the Feige impact across all these different projects is like he really is the secret sauce to a lot of why this worked in the first place. And his concentration on a project is key to its success in Marvel. And so when you have so many projects that make it impossible for that, I'll, I'll Feige, like put fix it in post sort of thing, fix it in reshoots. Then you get stuff like when you look at those TV shows, like Miss Marvel and She-Hulk are Two shows that I ha- there are episodes of those two shows that I love and would oh, stack same, up against same. anything else. Um, yeah. And then there's shows there are episodes that I cannot deny are absolute messes because something just like the wheels came off to a certain mm-hmm. degree. And so I don't think the problem problem is the characters. I don't think the problem is the writers. I don't think the project problem is the concept. I think the problem is just the smooth execution and and just sort of everything falling apart in the end because making a TV show is a different endeavor than making a film. And I think the re the, the reason secret invasion spooked me so much is because I think a lot of people could say, Oh, well, she Hulk and Miss Marvel, those are new characters. People were, didn't really get invested or whatever, but you know, Nick Fury, we've been waiting for the Nick Fury solo project for a long time. And and here he is invasion for 15 years. Exactly. And you cast it perfectly and you come up with a present premise that really seems, you know, engages with the comic book storyline, but does the Marvel thing where it sort of adapts it slightly for it, you know, puts its own um, MCU flavor on it. Um, And, and then it just completely flops. And that's that feels like danger, you know. There's a definite human quality to this. Where in the book you talk about, uh, I, I forget what uh, project they were working on, but Feige was staying in hotel rooms watching old sitcoms in the mornings before he had to go into work, and he just drew a lot of comfort from that, and that's what gave him the idea for Wandavision. Um, similar things to that, you know, with Hydra being part of Shield, it was in the comics, but Feige was like, no, let's blow this up. Like you need that time to relax so you can your brain can be free to think of things. Uh, and the same goes for all the other creative people, you know, coming down from Feige. So, Dave, going back to you, when we talk about Loki, right? You said you yeah. really dug the first episode. Do you see in Loki, like, a way back? Is, is this show going to get trust back? And is this how they build it? Like, if you're, you're you know, you're in the backseat, you're watching this happen, what do you think? Uh, yeah, I definitely think so. Uh, it, it needs to prioritize, and it seems to be just based on this first episode, and we haven't gotten to any actual Kang variant, so this might change. But it needs to prioritize being a fun show first. Uh, it has the characters that I like to see interact and talk about gobbledygook, and that's such a huge power for a television show that you could have, you know, elevator Mobius Loki scenes that I'm like, you know what? More of that. You could have, you know, time conversations that take place in two time periods. And I'm like, you know what? More of that. Why not? Mm -hmm. Um, The the fact that that's such a television-based thing, some amazing visual effects, some great action considering what actually happens, but it's not what we all assumed a superhero TV show would be and what ultimately Secret Invasion became disappointingly, which is two people wailing on each other uh, in the volume uh, with, you know, a whole bunch of CGI augmentation. Uh, they have characters. <laughs> uh, they have a interesting, you know, uh, premise uh, that involves, you know, like timey-wimey stuff. Mm-hmm. Uh, they have the capability of creating character surprises uh, instead of just building to a big fight, which ultimately some of these shows feel like they are. Uh, and I th- don't think that serves the television model. But something great about the television model, and the reason I agree with you, is 
this is going to make me feel old. We used to have like 22 episode seasons. And when you did, there were times where you knew there were going to be the good episodes. And there were Mm -hmm. times you just tuned in to see what was up. And if you didn't like it, you only had to wait a week before something else came out. I think if they're going to be spending, uh, you know, like $200 million on a show, uh, I would like to see them last more towards the 10 or 12 episode mark than I would to like the six episode mark. I think if you're spending that much on six episodes, uh, something's wrong just from the production angle. Because the thing on top of all this and the reason why we elevate Kevin Feige as a, sort of a you know a producer genius is this is all about the balancing of telling creatively fulfilling stories uh, against some of the business, biggest business backdrops in the entire world. Yeah. So with Kevin Feige's managed to stay in his place because he does really good at that. Bob Iger uh, was such a popular CEO because he was able to just acquire and acquire and acquire and let some smart people make good stuff after that. Now mm-hmm. he's a little bit less uh, well-received because he has to come in, fire a whole bunch of creative people, and basically make the balance sheet uh, add up and make he didn't, fulfilling he didn't do stories. Any, uh, he didn't do himself any favors at the start of the strikes either. No, no. I would Also, he's trying to pick his next successor, which I understand, but there aren't story people that I understand in High Up Disney that understand it like Bob Iger. And so right mm-hmm. now we're sort of seeing a conflict where it's like we're looking for somebody that can understand the importance of good storytelling but can also pay off for our shareholders. Uh, and you could uh, get an Iger, you could get a Zaslav, and uh, I think they are dealing with the same problems, but just how much they could uh, forward the telling of good stories is how much I extend trust to them. I, I don't see why they're having such a hard time. I go on YouTube every day, and I see tons of people who clearly know more than Bob Iger based on uh, <laughs> the way everybody yeah. armchair quarterbacks the MCU. Like, if they would just listen to me more often, I think that uh, everything would be they a lot should better. Call- they should call you, Ryan. I really do think they should. I could talk to both of you about this for hours. Unfortunately, if I do that, then people won't click on the video when they see a six-hour time code. Um, Dave Gonzalez, Joanna Robinson, thanks so much for joining me. Their socials are below. The book is out now, and you absolutely it is a must-read for MCU fans. Uh, I'm going to buy it just to have a hard copy, just to keep on my shelf. Thank you both very much for joining me.